Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that life is a vapor. God, we are here for a short time and we vanish away. And even as we were praying moments ago for needs in our church, we're reminded that this life is a frightful thing, fraught with danger and peril and fear. And Lord, this morning we come to you for help. Lord, we want help from you. So God, as we ponder your word this morning, as we ponder the coming of your Son, Lord, help us. Through your Holy Spirit, apply your word to the needs of our hearts. Do this for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Rex Blackburn. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Emmanuel Church. Uh, it's my pleasure to open the Word of God today with you. We will be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So, the question that this series of sermons that we're in seeks to answer is why did Jesus come? I wonder how many different answers we could get to that question. Certainly, out on the street, we could get hundreds. He's a good person, who cares, maybe a philosopher, he's a model of how to suffer evil, any number of answers we could get, some right, others very wrong. In the church, in this room, we could get many different answers. So if one by one we were asked the question in isolation, why did Jesus come? Dozens of correct answers, hopefully, would be given. What would you say? So if someone asked you, why did Jesus come? It's Christmas. Why did Jesus come? Well, that's partly what this series is about. So let's look at some of the different ways in which we can correctly answer that question. Why did Jesus come? To die for us, to rise for us, to obey his Father, to display the glory of the Father, to redeem a people, to destroy the works of the devil, to fulfill all righteousness. There are any number of answers we could give, some of which directly quote Jesus himself as to why he came. Well, this Advent series of sermons approaching Christmas, we hope, will provide us with a few more good biblical answers to that question. So why did Jesus come? Let's look at our text. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. One verse. For even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're looking at one verse here, Mark 10, 45. Not a whole big passage, we're looking at one verse. So it would be wise to place that verse in a context. So let's start with some context questions. First, 
where is this in Jesus' ministry? So if we've got a timeline from Jesus, the beginning of his earthly ministry to his resurrection and ascension. Where's this happening, this conversation that we're kind of dropping into? Well, look a few verses later. We're right at the end of chapter 10. Look at the opening of chapter 11. What do you see? The triumphal entry. Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So when he says this, Mark 10, 45, he's reaching sort of a hinge point in his ministry. In the timeline of Jesus' ministry, reaching Jerusalem is a milestone. The triumphal entry is a milestone in Jesus' ministry. What does it represent? Well, it represents that Jesus has arrived at the place of his death. Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. And in the triumphal entry, he's there. So his death is imminent. So here at the cusp of his entry into Jerusalem, he utters these words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And entering Jerusalem sort of seals that fate. He'll make good on that promise to give his life as a ransom. Second, okay, well, let's look before. Another contextual point to make here comes earlier in chapter 10. So Jesus is saying this, and what spoken context is this sentence being uttered? Well, the disciples still haven't figured out exactly what to do with all this talk of Jesus' death. So it was just two chapters before this in Mark 8 that Jesus first tells them, he begins to tell them that he's going to suffer and die. So that's where Peter makes his big confession of Jesus as the Christ and Jesus, uh, respond, uh, Jesus responds to that saying that he's going to suffer and die and Peter rebukes him. So Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then in Mark 9, the next chapter, Jesus foretells his death a second time. And the twelve are very confused about it, kind of nervous to even ask him any follow-up questions. And they sort of devolve into a discussion of who's going to be the greatest among them in the kingdom. And then in this chapter, chapter 10, we have our third foretelling of Christ's death. That's in Mark 10, 32. So just a few verses before. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And again, for some reason, this devolves into a discussion among the twelve about which one of them will be the greatest. So, picking up in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you can follow along in the text, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and asked him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. They don't know what's coming. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now, this hopefully helps our understanding of what's being said in verse 45. Right? So we see Jesus say, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And when we look at the context, we see that this is happening within this greater conversation about ruling, serving, authority, suffering. So to give a broad sort of paraphrase of this section of text, James and John ask, can we sit on either side of you when you come into your glory? So maybe him talking about his death, they're thinking, you know, he'll, he'll eventually enter into his kingdom, and, and we want to be on either side of him then. We don't know. Jesus says, you don't understand what's required of you to enter into my glory. You will experience the same baptism that I'm to be baptized with. So an allusion to both his death and the manner of their deaths. But it's not up to me who sits on my right and left. The other ten disciples get angry. For this obviously self-serving question. And then Jesus takes the opportunity to instruct them. Yes, worldly rulers, worldly authorities, they, they operate in this power, dominance, authority, sort of hierarchy. But not in my kingdom. The greatest in my kingdom is a servant. The first among you is the one who serves all of you. These themes lead directly into our text. So let's consider our text. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to divide that text into three parts, and those three parts will be three points. So number one, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Number two, the Son of Man came to serve. Point three, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Son of Man came not to be served. The Son of Man came to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can tell what we're talking about here is the coming of the Son of Man and why he came. So first, let me just briefly address this title. In our first point, the Son of Man came not to be served. Let's address that title, Son of Man, really quickly. Now, if you know your Bible... Your mind might go to a certain place when you hear that title, Son of Man. In fact, several months ago, back in the summer, uh, leading up to this series, uh, actually leading up to the Matthew series, I had the opportunity to preach from Daniel chapter 7. It's back in July, which is a key text when thinking about this title, the Son of Man. So Daniel 7 portrays the Son of Man stepping into this cosmic glory, this eternal dominion, this great power. And the New Testament writers draw on that frequently. So when you read Son of Man in the New Testament, you might immediately associate it with Daniel 7. However, without rehashing everything we talked about back in July, let me just state briefly kind of how we should think about that. So although in general, Jesus' widespread use of the Son of Man should definitely be associated with Daniel 7, that doesn't mean that every single instance in which he uses that phrase, son of man, for himself, he wants us thinking, 
cosmic glory, divine power. So remember when we looked at Daniel 7, we mentioned that verse where it says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So it seems there to indicate his, his humanity, that he is literally a Son of Man. Uh, but often, not always, but generally, the New Testament writers are trying to portray the opposite. Not his humanity, his glory, his divine, eternal dominion, because of Daniel 7. So, in Mark 10, here, it doesn't seem clear to me that Mark's trying to, like, hearken directly back to, to Daniel 7. In fact, elsewhere in the book, Mark nearly quotes Daniel 7 when referring to the Son of Man. From, it's Jesus talking, but Mark is writing. So, uh, in other places in Mark, it's nearly quoted, Daniel 7. So, Mark obviously knows about the passage. Uh, but here, it doesn't seem clear to me that it's some sort of direct reference. So, when we see the Son of Man did not come to be served. We're supposed to immediately import all of Daniel 7 into this passage. But, whether or not Mark intends to make some sort of clear Daniel 7 reference, it's helpful when we're considering Jesus' ministry as a servant to remember that this is the glorified Son of Man that we're talking about. This is the cosmic power, eternal divine kingdom. Uh, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. Now, one more thing that I'll observe here on the Son of Man portion. Notice the word even. If there's an argument to be made that Mark and Jesus do want us to think about Daniel 7 in this passage, the word even is the way to make that argument. Right? Let's look at the, let's look at the text again. You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. The greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. Even the Son of Man. So we're going from a lesser thing to a greater thing here, right? That's how it works. For instance, let me give you an example. Everyone enjoyed the party. Even Simon. You know, what does that mean? Well, apparently, everyone has a, has a standard of enjoyment that's like here. Simon, however, is apparently up here, right? Everyone enjoyed the party, even Simon. So what does that communicate? Well, the statement, everyone enjoyed the party, has greater force now because even Simon enjoyed it. Right? The statement now has more magnitude. Because even this guy, whose standards are here, enjoyed this party. Same thing with our text. The statement, the greatest among you must be servant of all, carries more weight because even the Son of Man serves. Because this principle about service applies to the Son of Man, a figure who, by our estimation, has no business serving anyone, but only being served, because this statement about service applies to him, even him, it carries that much more weight for us. So the ultimate example of greatness, of firstness, of highest order, is taking the role of a servant. Much more ought we to do the same. Now, before we move on to our next point, let's consider one more question 
on this topic of the Son of Man not coming to be served. So the Son of Man did not come to be served. I want to ask you, is this really a fair statement? Now, obviously, it's Jesus talking, but humor, humor the question. Quote, I came not to be served. End quote. Says Jesus, who is currently being served by millions of people around the world. You see what I mean? I didn't come to be served. Says Jesus, who we all say we serve him. Is this really a, an honest, fair statement? Okay, he didn't come so that people would serve him, but because he came, now millions of people serve him. Did Christ come to exalt himself or didn't he? Well, this overlooks the entire purpose of the discourse. The whole point is you want greatness in the kingdom? Be a servant here. You want to be first in the kingdom? Be last here. Yes, look around you. The rulers of this world show their greatness by exercising authority and power over their subjects. You see this all the time. You give somebody a little bit of power, you watch it go to their heads. Start bossing people around. Power reveals things about us. Yeah, that's how things work here, but not there. You hear Peter, you hear Peter echo this sort of sentiment in his epistle when he tells pastors they shouldn't domineer over those in their charge. It's not how things work in the kingdom. Another important question. I, th I find this one to be very important. Okay, fine. Christ was a servant here, and now he's exalted, and we serve him. Great. Was Christ's posture as a servant strictly limited to his time on earth? So Christ tells us over and over again, he's a servant. He came to serve. I am meek and lowly in heart. Are those things still true about Jesus right now? He's been exalted. He's been glorified. Does that, does that not change the game? Now he's the Lord and we're the servants, right? He's no longer a servant. He's done serving now, right? Well, point two. The Son of Man did not come to serve. Point two, the Son of Man, I'm sorry, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Point two, the Son of Man came to serve. So let's answer that question. Another way of asking the question, what does Jesus mean when he says that the Son of Man came to serve? Well, the answer for his time on earth, again, is obvious. Right? We see Jesus serving people left and right. He gave to the poor. He healed the sick. He, he helped the lame to walk. Give sight to the blind. He cured those possessed by demons. He raised the dead. He fed crowds of hungry people. Most notably, maybe, he gets down and washes the feet of his disciples. Literally performing the function that was reserved for a servant. And then tells them, go and do likewise. So it's obvious that Jesus served on earth. But let, before we move on to our question again, let's not hurry past that point even though it may be clear to us, yes, the Lord of glory served, but don't miss that. The Lord of glory 
served. He stepped down. He stooped. He condescended to serve sinners, to help sinners, to help you. So Christian, do you feel the weight of life's sorrows? Do you feel the weight of life's obligations? The responsibilities that are placed on you? The fears that we encounter here? The doubts that we encounter here? The anxieties that we experience here? You experience those things, Christian? Well, when Jesus says he came to serve, what does that mean other than Jesus is saying, I came to help. I came to offer relief. I came to comfort. I came to unburden. I came to offer aid to you. He did not come to be helped. He came to help. What wound do we have that Christ could not mend? What worry do you have that Christ cannot soothe? What anxiety is so great that it is beyond his comfort? For this very reason he has come to serve. To help weak sinners in the multitude of ways in which weak sinners need help. All sorts of ways you need help. All sorts of ways you don't even know about that you need help. Day by day, minute by minute, help is needed to sustain you. And Christ came to offer that freely. He came to serve. But... This still begs the question that I asked a moment ago, doesn't it? The, the question I asked was, of course Jesus was like that on earth. When he was meek and lowly and mild and, and, and I came to serve and not to be served. But now he is the one who's being served, right? We're the ones serving him. So is he still at this moment as eager to serve as he was then? I want to be careful in answering that question. First, it should be noted, there is a divide between Christ's life on earth and Christ's current station in glory. There is a divide there, an important divide. These two states of Christ have differences, his humiliation and his glorification. Make no mistakes. However, Jesus, does he leave behind all of the servant talk when he's glorified? So yes, I'm not saying there's no difference in Jesus' life then and Jesus' life now. But the question is, does Jesus leave behind all of this, these ideas of him being a servant when he's glorified? Or is there any sense in which Jesus still serves his people and will serve them in the future? No, he does not leave it all behind. Yes, Jesus is as eager now to serve as he was when he was on the earth. I want to let the Puritan Thomas Goodwin defend this point for me. So Thomas Goodwin has a book, wonderful book, called The Heart of Christ. So it's a little Puritan paperback. The full title, and you'll see why I'm utilizing this book to answer this question, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. So the book's trying to answer the question, okay, sinner, how does Christ feel about you? What's Christ's disposition toward you, sinner? Not Christ on earth, we, we see that, 
But Christ in heaven, Christ exalted, how does he feel about you? Listen to Goodwin. Quote, we are apt to think that Christ, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition towards sinners. That he's not able to bear sinners. No, he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Gentleness is my nature and my temper. Injuries and unkindnesses do not work upon me as to make me irreconcilable. It is my nature to forgive. But, we think, he now being the heir of heaven, being now filled with glory, now sitting at God's right hand, now surely he despises our lowliness. Not out of anger, but out of that height of greatness and distance to which he is now advanced. You hear the question he's asking? Same question. Surely now Christ is exalted and high enough that he's, he's got a different disposition towards us sinners. So though he may be meek, yet he is now too high and lofty to condescend to take to heart our poor and lowly condition. No, says Christ, I am lowly. And this is not merely a semblance or something put on externally by Christ. Christ says, I am lowly and I am meek in heart. It is from Christ's very heart that he is lowly. It is his temper. It is his disposition. He does not merely seem gentle. It is his very nature to be so, says Goodwin. So you see what's being said there? When G- that, 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 that passage we quote often, I am meek and lowly in heart. Goodwin, Goodwin draws out, this is, this is Christ's very heart. This is not something he merely adopted. This isn't something he put on. Gentleness towards sinners, meekness, lowliness, these flow out of Christ's very heart towards you, sinner. Think of the most gracious gentle, helpful person you know. How delightful and sweet it is to know such a person and to be the beneficiary of their love and helpfulness. How much more ought we to treasure the sweetness, the tenderness of Christ? Because it's natural for him to do these things. It's his very nature. He doesn't work against his nature to be gentle to sinners. He is lowly and meek from his heart. Also consider from Goodwin. Quote. So there's another reason why we should think this. Christ's own joy. Christ's own comfort. Christ's own happiness and Christ's own glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy and pardon and relief and comfort to his members here on earth under all of their infirmities. In fact, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than they themselves can be. For in doing good to his people, he does only good to himself. So that the more love and grace he shows unto the members of his body, the more love and grace he shows unto himself. So Goodman says, okay, why else should we believe that Christ is still eager to help and serve and love and be gracious to sinners on earth? 
because it glorifies his, his own name. One more from Goodwin. Though the book is full of these sorts of arguments. Quote, Christ was made like us in all things so that, he's quoting Hebrews here, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. That is, merciful in such a way as otherwise God had never been. Namely, as a man. Catch this. So that this union of the two natures, God and men, was projected by God to make up the rarest compound of grace and mercy that ever could have existed, fully fitted to the healing and saving of our sin-sick souls. So what's he saying there? When Hebrew says that God, uh, that, that Jesus was made like us in every way, so that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest. What's being said there is that by taking on our nature, Jesus is able to sympathize with us, have grace towards us, be merciful to us in a way that God had never been before. Why? Because by uniting those two natures, the rarest and most unique alloy, compound of grace and mercy and comfort and help to sinners was created. That's God's plan, sending Jesus as a man. I want him to be merciful. I want him to be a faithful high priest. I want him to sympathize with frail and weak sinners. So let's make him a man. Consider, one, uh, consider from the scriptures. Christ's current role as intercessor Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. 1 John 2 says Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7.25, we learn that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Christ performs divine service for you this very moment. Does Christ still live to serve you? Did Christ come to serve And is that still true? Yes. Of course. He serves you as we speak. He intercedes for you before the Father. He advocates for you. Christ is still a man. Consider that. When the Word became flesh, the Godhead is now changed inalterably. Now, in the Godhead, among the Godhead, is an exalted man. A God-man. Why? So he can be merciful to you. So he can sympathize with your weakness. Consider one more argument. Not only that Christ now still serves, but that Christ even in the future will serve. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. That's what Jesus says. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. You following? So be awake, be alert. The master's coming back. Be be awake when he gets here. Blessed are those who the master finds awake when he comes back. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service 
and have them, the servants, recline at table, and he will come to them and serve them. You think like that? About the coming Jesus in his glory? Did even then, wonder of wonders, the servants will recline at table and the master will serve them? How is this? That Christ can be glorified and exalted, yet serve us. Is that not demeaning to him? Listen to John Piper answer that question. You may say, you're quoting too many other people. If I find things that are said better than I can say them, I'm robbing you to try to say them better than they've been said. Exhibit A. <laughs> Listen to John Piper here. Does this belittle the risen Christ? To say that he was and is and will ever be the servant of his people? Does this belittle him? It would if servant meant one who takes orders, or if we thought us to be his master, yes, that would dishonor him, but it does not dishonor Christ to say to him that we are weak and in need of his help. It does not dishonor him to say that he is the only one who can serve us with what we most need. It does not dishonor him to say that he is an inexhaustible spring of love and that the more he helps us, and that the more we depend on his service, the more amazing his resources appear. So, does Christ still serve sinners like you? Well, does he help? Does he console? Does he forgive? Does he comfort? Does he care? Of course Christ still serves you. He is, in a sense, our chief servant, our great helper. The Lord is my helper. I will say, what can man do to me? Therefore, who will be greater in the kingdom of heaven than Christ? For he is the greatest servant. Finally, let's look at the last portion of the verse. Son of man came not to be served. Son of man came to serve, Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom. We've seen that Christ is a servant of His people, and now we see the chief manner in which Christ performs this service. The chief way He serves us, by giving His life as a ransom for us. What does this word mean, ransom? Some of you will know this word has special significance for me. My second son is named Ransom. Well, for us, when we hear the word Ransom, we probably imagine an action movie, some sort of thriller in which the child of some wealthy man is kidnapped and, and held for Ransom. It's not too far off the original meaning, actually. You pay me the Ransom money, you get your child back. Ransom. So our English word, ransom, actually comes from Old French. So a lot of English comes from French. Norman invasion from France into England, 1066. 
We get a lot of English from Old French. The Latin synonym for this word, see if you recognize it, is redemptio. So, sort of synonymous words here. Redemption, redeem, buy back, ransom. Ransom money was liberty money, freedom money, redemption money. It was money that set you free from bondage, from debt, from something that you owed. There have been theories in the history of the church. Okay, so Jesus gives his life as a ransom. Who's he paying off? There have been many theories in the history of the church that have put forward the idea that Satan held us captive. And that Jesus dies to, to pay off Satan. That's actually called the ransom theory of atonement. That's not the way the Bible presents the human problem. Our problem is worse. Satan is not the one demanding payment. God is. You see, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, there's a price on your head. You've run up a sin debt to a holy God. And how do you propose to pay him what you owe? What will you give? You owe an impossible amount. Just to give you an idea, all the death and sickness and suffering and sin that has ever existed in the world came from one bite of fruit. Stack up your track record. What is the penalty for all of your sin? It is a debt you cannot pay. The magnitude of sin's offense against the maker of the universe, how do you characterize that? Put a dollar figure on it, right? I checked the, the national debt clock this morning. <laughs> I hear a groan. $31 trillion. How does that stack up? Drop in the ocean. Right? No amount of money. No list of good deeds. No good intentions can even start to move the needle in the right direction. In fact, they may just push it further the other way and increase your debt. And Christian, this was your state until someone steps up to pay the ransom, to redeem you, to pay your debt. Two points to observe about this. Number one, not only does Christ pay your ransom, listen to Christ's words again. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not only does Christ pay the ransom, you know what I'm going to say, he's the ransom, right? Like it's not just he comes up with the money, he's the money. He's the price. He gives his life as the ransom for you. Second thing to observe here. We mentioned that this redemption, this ransom, is not owed to Satan. It's owed to God the Father. And the good news is, guess who initiates 
the ransom process. Guess who? Guess whose idea redemption is? It's God himself. The very one who's owed the money lays out the plan to pay it off. This is not something that God is compelled to do or constrained or strong-armed into doing. It's his idea. God, the offended party, chose of his own volition to initiate reconciliation and then provides the payment for it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. This is why we sing, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his blood has paid my ransom. Why should I gain from this? It's his reward. All I know is I'm paid for. Many of you will know C.S. Lewis. Um, probably for the Chronicles of Narnia, which he wrote, or maybe for Mere Christianity or the Screwtape Letters. Huge catalog of works for C.S. Lewis. One series of his that's not as well known is a science fiction trilogy that he wrote. Some of you are surprised to even hear that he wrote a science fiction trilogy, commonly known as the Space Trilogy. So it contains Lewis's best and favorite books, actually. That may be news to you. I learned that from an interview from a man named Walt Walter Hooper. You may know that name. Walter Hooper was C.S. Lewis's personal live-in assistant. Helped him with all sorts of things. Wonder of wonders, Walter Hooper was from Reedsville, right up the road. He was going to school at the University of Chapel Hill doing work on C.S. Lewis, got the opportunity to go over there and interview him. Lewis invited him to stay for a few days and then invited him on to just stay in the kilns with him. So some Tar Heel from Reedsville <laughs> ends up as C.S. Lewis's personal assistant. There are interviews with him online. They're wonderful. Walter Hooper asks him in this initial interview, uh, Mr. Lewis, which of your books do you think is best? Lewis said, I think Paralandra is best, which is the second book in the Space Trilogy. Uh, which of my books do you like the most? Lewis asks Hooper. Hooper says, well, I agree with you. I think Paralandra is best. Lewis said, no, 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 no. You asked me which of my books I thought best. I asked you which of my books you liked best. Hooper says, oh, okay, well, in that case, I would have to say that hideous strength, the third book in the Space Trilogy. Lewis says, me too. So, in this little-known trilogy that many people have never even heard of, Lewis says the book he likes most and the book of his that he thinks best was odd. So that's me commending the trilogy to you. In the second book of this trilogy, this is fascinating. C.S. Lewis explores the idea of what it would be like if there was an unfallen race on an unfallen planet. The protagonist of this trilogy, main character, is sent by God to this planet called Paralandra, Venus, to not redeem this fallen race, but to prevent this race from falling. And the protagonist succeeds. He defeats the, the unman, which is sort of the corollary of the serpent, 
and prevents this race from falling into sin, though he suffers a bleeding wound to his heel in the process. There's a point in this trilogy uh, where God explains to this protagonist the reason for his name. The protagonist's name is Ransom. And if you know C.S. Lewis, you know that's not accidental. God tells this main character, he tells Ransom, it is not for nothing that you are named Ransom. And he tells him that Ransom is a name for a payment that delivers. Now, that sounds kind of different than how we think about ransom today. We think of a ransom payment as being delivered, right? We think of, oh, deliver the ransom money to this address. But it's not the, the ransom money isn't being delivered. The ransom money is delivering, according to this interpretation. So the ransom isn't delivered to someone. It delivers someone. So, again, God the Father demands a ransom be paid. God the Father initiates the ransom. God the Son pays the ransom. God the Son is himself the payment of the ransom. And what do you do? God acts. God initiates. God delivers, God sends ransom, and you and I just get to be the happy beneficiaries of all of this. Our job is to receive, to, to believe, to trust, to love. Faith is our duty here. God decisively acts, you just get. In closing, This series is designed to answer the question, why did Jesus come into the world? Let's review. Christ did not come to be served. Christ did not come to demand your service. That can sound strange to hear, but think about it. What good is your service to him? What need does he have of your service? God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. What do you bring to the table that Jesus couldn't easily get by raising up rocks to serve him? Nothing. He has no need of you. He has no need of your service. Instead, Christ came to serve you. Christ was born to help you. Christmas is a time to celebrate the fact that Christ came to serve you by dying for you. And now, not you serving him to make up some debt, but now because he has paid your ransom, to whom do you belong? Not to a harsh master, you remember the parable where Jesus tells about the, 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 the servants who invested the talents? And the one who didn't invest his talents and had nothing to show for it, what does he say to the master when the master returns? I fearing you to be a hard man, a stern, strict master. I was afraid to, to invest it, th- that I might lose anything. What happens to that servant? He's cast out. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking that Christ is stern and sour towards you, demanding with a whip that you serve him. No, he bought you. You get to be his. Of course you serve him. Not to make up your debt, but because he paid it off. You belong to him now. And to whom would you rather belong? To yourself? Good luck with that. If you haven't learned it by now, you and I are the problem. So now what do we get? We get to be the servants of the one who lives to serve us, to help us. The one who paid our ransom. If you don't know this, if you've not experienced this, let me beckon, let me beg you, turn from sin, turn from yourself, turn to Christ. No better deal in the world. This is why Jesus came. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. How does he serve us? Well, most chiefly, by giving his life as our ransom, by buying us back. Let's pray. God, we do not hide the fact. We openly acknowledge it. We need help. We are weak and frail. Our hearts are fickle and deceptive. God, we're sinners. And so this morning, we come to you again asking you for help. But God, we, we praise you, we thank you. We're so grateful that you, you bid us come. You tell us to come. So Lord, we do just that. We come to you now, praising you, thanking you for sending such a Savior, for sending us a ransom. Thank you that Jesus has come. It's in his name that we pray, and it's in his name that we will now sing to you. Amen. We're going to sing now, so I invite you to stand. and Let's sing together this song, Man of Sorrows. Thank you.